0: Our Proverb reading this morning is in Proverbs chapter 28. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. We're in Proverbs chapter 28. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? The wicked flee when no one pursues but the righteous are bold as a lion. When a land transgresses, it has many rulers, but with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. A poor man who oppresses the poor is a beating rain that leaves no food. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, Even his prayer is an abomination. Whoever misleads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will have a goodly inheritance. A rich man is wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has understanding will find him out. The word of the Lord. Please have a seat. Saints, we consider this morning. Verses 4 and 5, one more time I'll read them to you. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. So it talks about those who have outright abandoned the instruction of the Lord, and in that case you have people who are so lost that what they find praiseworthy is wickedness. And so you have these people who have abandoned the Lord, lost in their ways, praising wickedness. That's how bad it is. In contrast, then, there are the righteous, the people of the Lord, and they fight back. They push back. They strive against the wickedness that pervades their society. One commentator To paraphrase, he said, this proverb divides humanity into two spiritual categories, either striving against the wicked or striving against God. It's helpful sometimes to see those lines drawn to recognize how important justice is. Uh, You've heard me say this before, but I feel like it's one of those messages to, to say often, we are the people of justice because we are the people of the God of justice. Justice is really just a reflection of the heart of God. And if we are at all close to that God, we are going to be like him, reflecting his justice. And, and he describes throughout the scriptures how he views justice. And it's that high calling of biblical, full, robust justice that's what we're called to i say that because it's worth you know stirring us up to more than merely fighting the culture wars so culture wars are sometimes about matters of justice but i i mean i have very little faith in culture war things they seem to be mob mentality driven by media outlets Uh, they often seem to be people just wanting to make everything about one issue and then you're You know, you have your people you're for and your people who you're against, and then we can all just be tribal and fight each other. I find very little, once you go deeper into culture war stuff, that encourages me. I think we would also find the culture war stuff does not do justice to just how wide-reaching the justice of God is. And so we don't look to the culture or the culture war to define what justice is. We look to God. And we look to him to ask, "What are all the things you care about?" We look to him and we ask, "And how deeply do you care about every issue that you care about?" We ask him, "Lord, what is real justice? What is whole justice?" And so I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, one of the greatest injustices that is uh, taking place uh, it must be the, this just elective abortion practice. Right, where we just endorse the idea that babies die for our convenience. I mean, this is just one of the greatest injustices that you can imagine. Now, are there other injustices still to consider, though? That's the kind of mentality to be stirred up in, because as soon as you ask the question, you say, well, of course. Of course there are others. See, we don't want our concern with one area of justice to mean we forget what justice is in other areas of, of the world of our life so we care for babies absolutely we care about them in the womb and we care about them afterwards how they're going to be raised and loved and supported we care about all of that but if you look at the scriptures you're going to find God's care for justice goes to anyone who is weak and oppressed one of the things that you can tell just gets God passionately angry is to watch the powerful oppress the weak. It's all throughout the scriptures, especially the prophets. You'll see these great condemnations of how far Israel has fallen, the weak are oppressed, the poor are oppressed, the sojourner is oppressed, the one who was hired for his wages is oppressed. We realize that God's call to justice calls us to many things. And so that is what we're meant to strive for. That is what we're meant to fight for. If we're known for anything, we should be known as the people of justice. And so let's turn then back to our time in the confession. Start out all of these times with that awkward time when I ask you questions and see if you know the answers. We all like this time. So uh, we're in chapter 21 of the confession, Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. And so we're just going to do a quick recap On what we did last time, what is one way the Christian is set free from the consequences of their failings before God? That was sort of my loose category for the first uh, parts of our greatest hits, I was calling it. The, The liberties that we enjoy because of Christ. What's one of those ways that we're set free from the consequences of our failings before God? Say that again. Grace through, Christ. grace through Christ. Yeah, absolutely. And and what would we have if we didn't have that grace? Condemnation. condemnation. Yeah. I mean, th- th- these are just really straight up gospel answers, right? Condemnation, wrath, guilt. These are the things that that stick to our souls before Christ, right? And in Christ, we are set free from the you know the condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have anything to fear. We talked about the ways that Christians are delivered from hostile powers. You remember one way that we're delivered from hostile powers? Naomi. Yeah, yeah, I I, I actually, that one really just grabs my heart in particular. That idea that you are not a slave to sin. You know, there was once a time before Christ when you were outright a slave. No choice in the matter. You always did what your master told you to do. And I think a lot of us can can sort of um, apply that picture to what it felt like to not be a Christian. To feel that slavery, to feel that bondage, and to feel what resulted from it. Slave, uh, sin's not a kind master. And so many of us know what it's like to have that cruel master over us, the the lack of hope, the lack of peace, the brokenness, uh, the, the folly, right? All those things pervading our lives. And so the idea that for whatever potency sin still has in my life, you know that battle is still ongoing, but it's not my master, I find that liberty to just be so encouraging. Christ has broken that slavery. All right, and last, how is it that Christians can be said to experience the same afflictions as the world and yet have those afflictions be completely transformed? You remember what we said about that? Just going to wait you out. Mary. Well, tell me what you mean by that. Yeah. So Mary's quoting 1 Corinthians 4, 15, which is what we, one of the things we talked about. So do believers still expect to die? Right? All of us do. All of us do. There, there will be one blessed generation that, that apparently gets to skip that. Right? All the rest of us expect it, yet that's not going to be the same kind of death as it is for the world, one in which we fear what's on the other side, one in which the grave is going to have victory over us. No, we are going to be raised up again. We're going to be raised up to eternal life, and so we can go through the same thing. And yet our God has done us such good, is going to do us such good, that it won't be the same thing as what the world experiences. The liberty we have in Christ actually completely transforms the things that the world still fears. So, with that, let's go ahead and move forward to the the next part of the confession. Did you guys all get your notes? Does anyone need notes? We're good? Right on. All right. so we're picking up. Uh, We're still in paragraph one of chapter 21, but we're now going to pick up in that second paragraph. I'm just calling it liberty before and after Christ. The confession reads like this. All these liberties were also enjoyed in their essence by believers under the law. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further expanded, They are free from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish congregation was subjected. They have greater confidence of access to the throne of grace. And they have a fuller supply of God's free spirit than believers under the law usually experienced. All right, let's unpack that. So the first thing that I would put before you is the liberty that Christians have in common with believers before Christ. This is one of those foundational ideas that you may or may not be familiar with, the idea of how much we actually have in common with people before Christ. You'll you'll see in the Bible that Old Testament saints are described as sharing in the very same faith and the very same salvation as New Testament saints. And so just really... Classically, Romans 4, verses 3 through 6. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. We pause there. Did Abraham live before or after Christ's coming? Before. Did David live before or after Christ's coming? Before, yes, thank you. So what what Abraham is being put forward here as is the model of saving faith. The very heart of the faith is, is, is found in Abraham, so much so that Paul's going to make an enormous deal of it to describe that role of faith in salvation as opposed to works. Abraham, the model of the same faith that we hold to, the model of the same salvation that we enjoy, yet before Christ. You also notice David was mentioned there. David also understanding, knowing the blessing of when God counts righteousness apart from works. Both of these men, prominent, classic men of the Old Testament, they are enjoying and describing that same saving faith, that same way of salvation that we believe in, are saved by, trust in today. You'll see it also Galatians 3 verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. As in, those who trust in Christ, those who are of faith, they are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We have in common that same way of faith, that same salvation. We have so much in common, it turns out, with believers in the Old Testament. I'll also point you to a phrase that the the confession used here. It talked about the jewish congregation and actually the the uh original language so we're using an updated version of the confession the original version of the confession it actually just said outright the jewish church this is one of those times where you you, you have a cool little provocative moment you ask yourself is there such a thing as the jewish congregation as the jewish church One thing I would point out that actually makes this make a lot of sense real quickly is how identical wording is being used in the Old Testament and the New. So when we use the word for church, we're translating the word ekklesia. That's one of those popular Greek words. You probably have heard it. Ekklesia just means assembly or congregation. So picture any time in the New Testament that we have that word church, Picture filling in a little bit fuller of a definition and just calling it the assembly or the congregation. Well, then you go back to the Old Testament and you realize what is Israel constantly being described as? The assembly, the congregation. The exact same words are being used in the New Testament and the Old for the people of God. Now, explicitly, you'll find this in a place like Romans 11 talking about, you know, the the fate of, you know, the unbelieving Jews who were broken off from that tree, the Gentiles who were grafted in. You remember that whole imagery? There's only one tree. And there's only one root, the root that nourishes the the whole tree. You get the, the very clear picture there. There is one people of God. You'll get that picture also in Ephesians chapter 2 like 11 through 22 one people of god one household of god the people across the old testament and the new testament they belong to the same people of god and that's that foundation where then you begin to understand that what the confession is talking about that in essence in substance all the people of god have enjoyed the same liberty across time Now, there are differences, though. This is always one of those important things when you're studying the Bible as a whole, to understand the ways that things are uh, the same and to understand the way that things are different. Continuity, discontinuity, is what it's talked about as. And the Confession goes on to say that the liberty of Christians is further expanded. So, how so? Well, they say Christians are free of the ceremonial law. That was what applied to the Jewish congregation. The ceremonial law, we talked about this in chapter 19. We actually did do that here at Dayspring if you want. You can go download those teachings. But the ceremonial laws were laws that pointed to and were fulfilled by Christ. Both of those things being true. And and the way you might think of the ceremonial law is there was a way that God treated his people in their infancy. And as the people of God sort of were raised up, he began to treat them uh, more in their maturity as you go on. To be clear, I'm not saying people now are better than people then. Just saying that God clearly has treated his people in one way and progressed into another. And the ceremonial law is much like that. It served a purpose for the people of God in their infancy, but that doesn't mean that that's supposed to be carried on forever. You take, for example, our children. My children have a bedtime. I think we all believe in young children having bedtimes, amen? <laughs> it's a good thing. Now, there's going to come an age when they'll stop having a bedtime. And that will be good, and that will be, that will be right. Now, you, you imagine I've got a, you know, say a college student living at home with me, and I'm like, it's 8 o'clock, you should be in bed. You know, everyone's going to find that to be not an appropriate way to treat a certain age, right? It served a function in their youth, but it gave way in their maturity. That's much like what the ceremonial law was. Hebrews 10 will talk about the law as being a shadow of the good things that were to come. In Christ, we have everything, all the fullness that the ceremonial law of Israel was pointing to. And so that's why you'll have John 1.17. For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so we see this way that we we are freed in sort of a greater maturity of the people of God from the ceremonial law. That's part of our expanded liberty. Also, Christians are said to have a, a greater confidence of access to the throne of grace. That's a great phrase, greater confidence of access to the throne of grace. I want you to remember on the one hand, what the temple was like and all those layers of restriction, what they were like. So the author of Hebrews actually lays this out really nicely for us. In chapter 9, he'll say it this way. The priests go regularly into the first section, he's talking about the holy place, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, and now he's talking about the most holy place, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Do you hear that? Restriction after restriction after restriction. So the priests go into the, the holy place, but only the high priest can go beyond that into the most holy place, and him only once a year, and him only when he has blood cleansing him and the people for their unintentional sins. You hear layer after layer of those restrictions. Well, then hear Hebrews 10, 19, and 20. Hear the difference of what the people of God after Christ enjoy. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So there you have this picture of our great high priest. He has done the work so that we are holy, so that in him we can go into the heavenly sanctuary itself with confidence. An amazing contrast compared to the realities that Old Testament believers were living in. We are cleansed by the blood of Christ. We are enabled by the blood of Christ. How else do we have this expanded liberty? Will Christians have a fuller supply of the Holy Spirit? Now, this is one of those things that's helpful to just really be clear about. Before Christ ascended went into heaven, right? The Spirit had not yet been given. Now, the Spirit had been at work. You see that really explicitly in the prophets, right? For example. But it was once Christ ascended, that was when he poured out his spirit. And so that's all really clearly laid out in John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I remind you of just the beautiful truth of it was good for us that Jesus left in that physical sense. That's his own words. It's good for you that I go, because when I go, I will send another helper. We received the indwelling Holy Spirit poured out on all the people of God indiscriminately, because Jesus ascended and gave us his spirit. It's hard for us to get our minds around that, that it can be better to not have Jesus physically around, right? We would all give anything to have Jesus physically around, to to have been able to talk with him, see how he lived. That all would have just been amazing. And yet if we trust the words of Jesus, we realize we have it better because he left ascended he's coming back good news but it was good for us that he left and so it's in all these ways that we have these incredible this incredible expansion of the liberty of christ old testament believers in essence enjoyed the liberty of the people of god so we look at them and we say here are all these things that we have in common it's the same way way of salvation it's the same salvation you see it in abraham david And yet, Christians know a greater liberty than people before Christ. And so that takes us then into the second paragraph. The second paragraph, God alone is the Lord of the conscience. We're really going to see now, I described that first paragraph, or even those first two in some sense, as these greatest hits, these amazing realities of the gospel. Now we're beginning to see where they're going to, the, the writers of the confession, where they're going to apply these things. God alone, the confession reads, is Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from human doctrines and commandments that are in any way contrary to his word or not contained in it. All right, important stuff, really important stuff here. God alone is Lord of the conscience. So we're talking conscience. We actually talked about this not that long ago, but let's just touch on it real quick. What is conscience? Uh, Just defining that word, it's the inward faculty for distinguishing right and wrong. One theologian, I thought, helpfully described it like this. The conscience is man's own awareness of God's standard. And that's helpful because it's it's different than saying whatever you believe in your conscience is right. It is your awareness of what is right. It's your awareness of God's standard. And so we we just really clearly have to draw this line. There's a difference between conscience and just your personal conviction. There's a difference between your awareness of what is right in God's eyes and simply what you think, what your opinions are no matter how strong they are we have to make that distinction so we don't muddy up all of the waters there's any number of times that we actually very much need god to come in with his spirit and his word and reshape our opinions because they're not right any number of times where our instincts our passions they are not right so we are clear that personal conviction alone is not some definition of what's right But we're going farther than that. We're we're this this sensitivity that humanity has in common to God's standards. God alone, the confession says, has authority over our conscience. So, just really famously, James 4 verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And you'll see that theme almost exactly in Isaiah 33, verse 22, as well. The idea that there is only one who actually defines what right and wrong is. There's only one who can hold judgment over what right and wrong is, and that is God. You see that also in Romans 14, 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. He will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. We see this orientation in scripture, in the biblical worldview, that God alone is the one who speaks to what is right and wrong. He alone is the one authoritative over what is right and wrong. He alone defines it. We look to him as the only one who has authority over our conscience. And so One theologian writes, the conscience is responsible only to God's authority. And then the confession goes on, God leaves the conscience free from contrary authorities. God leaves the conscience free from, frankly, any additional authority. Christians are not bound to any authority that goes against God's authority. Classic verse, Acts chapter 4, verse 19. You may remember this from just last year. There they are preaching, they're getting arrested, they're getting beaten and being told, you need to stop preaching the gospel. The word of God reads like this, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. What do they mean by that? They meant there's no way we're going to listen to you and not God. They meant there's no way that it is right to take a man's authority instead of God's. If you run into a moment when any man says anything contrary to what God has said, you choose what God has said. You go with what God has said. You submit to what God has said. 1 Corinthians 7, 23 will also say this, you were bought with a price, do not become bondservants of men. And so here we're beginning to put together these ideas. We were set free, right, by the blood of Christ, right, from, from all the consequences of our sin and our mistakes, We were set free from hostile powers. And you remember, we were also set free to a new relationship with God. Not the slavish obedience, but we cry out to him like, Abba, Father, you remember these things? You begin to see this this idea that because we have been set free to God, we have been bought, we belong to God, we're not supposed to, we can't go back then and serve men. We can't forsake God the rights he has over us, the authority he has over us and over our conscience in particular and go back and serve men and their whims and their opinions and their dictates and their judgments. And it's important to see that this contrary authority, any authority that's subverting, going against, trying to pile on, uh, this contrary authority can exist in any realm of authority. I think it's real natural for us to gravitate to what it's like when civil powers do things like this, but let's flesh out that this goes to any realm of authority. Parenting? Can parents seek to to have authority that doesn't belong to them? Right? You can imagine parents saying, it says in the Bible, go to sleep by 8 p.m. Not true. You could imagine a parent insisting on things that are contrary to the authority of God, adding to the authority of God, not their right at all to bind consciences with. This could be in marriage. Be like, honey, you know, we could get a way better um, tax situation if you would file for disability. You did just have hand surgery after all. She says, but I don't qualify. I says, you need to listen to me. I'm your husband. No right at all. No right at all. That is a contrary authority. By all means, you can have it in civil authority. Yes, you can definitely have it in civil authority. But here's another way you can have it. You can have it in a church. You can have it absolutely in a church. Now, for the writers of the Confession, I mean, really high on their list is going to be Roman Catholicism. It's pretty hard for us to I think grasp the cultural ecclesiastical civil power of rome in those days we just we just don't live in them we've never had to taste just how stiff that authority was Uh, but it was profound it was powerful and and in you know the the times of the confession they're very much thinking about all kinds of catholic beliefs and practices that are being imposed based on some church teaching or tradition even though they have no grounding in the word of god you know this is one of these areas that um it's just it's actually it's like it's a deep passion of mine and i'm trying to do this all the time all the time and ideally you, you hardly even notice it's going on but i try and be very clear about when i'm speaking with the authority of god what that means is when I'm pointing you to what the Word of God says, what meanings come out of the Word of God, I try very hard not to muddy the waters by just mixing in opinions every now and again. So you're not sure. Sometimes it's kind of like, thus saith the Lord, and sometimes it's just like, and this is just Jason being really passionate about something. Why, why this ends up being so important, I mean, it's important for my own walk, but it's important for you um, you guys, if you're going to do justice to the idea that you have a pastor, uh, that you have voluntarily uh, joined yourself to this church, submitted yourself to uh, the pastor you have, it puts you in a very difficult position if I'm ever telling you to do something really that, like, that you don't want to do because you're having this religious authority come and say something to you, and you're feeling this tension that you don't want to do it, right? And so on the one hand, you've got your own principles, your own decision-making, and you're thinking this doesn't seem right. But on the other hand, if you've got really, I mean, a fairly sober estimation of what a pastor is, you're thinking, but am I disobeying God by going against what my pastor says? This is why so much religious abuse can happen, is because the pastor embodies such an important role Uh, They they carry with them so much uh, assumed authority, we'll say. And, And what I try and be very clear about is not telling you to do things that aren't the Word of God or based very clearly in the Word of God. I could put you in all kinds of difficult positions where you're really just feeling just all conscience bound. Oh no, I need to do this, but I don't see why I need to do this. I could go and undermine everything that comes out of the sermon because you think, no, that other time Jason was just full of it. I don't like what he's preaching today. He's probably wrong about that too, right? We could totally undermine uh, the pulpit. And so there's just any number of things I'm just not going to put my weight behind. I'm not going to make you think that I'm preaching God's authoritative word if I'm not. Like We're not going to have a church requirement that you guys all like soccer or something. You shall like, like soccer. It's a tenet of membership. Right, we'll, ne- we'll, we'll never do that. And so one of, one of the things I just want to strive for is if I'm saying something to you on like a pastoral level, especially if I'm preaching it, I'm trying to give you the clear, authoritative word of God. And so my great hope is that means you're never going to hear something I preach and just be like, psh, whatever. Now, you may very soberly get to a point where you disagree with me, and I I believe that could happen, and and that could be honorable. But I don't want you to think I'm just mixing in my own stuff up here. Like every now and again, you just go ahead and filter it out. And that all comes back to this idea of honoring the realm of authority in in which you live. Not trying to set myself up, my opinions up, as some contrary authority churches absolutely can abuse christian liberty and the liberty of conscience because they go out and they make their people think that you are required before god as a matter of conscience to do x y or z when you're not you'll hear me talk very little about politics in part because that's one of those things that it can be very difficult to navigate all the nuances that go into any given political position And I'm not going to do that to you where you go to the ballot box and you think, oh no, I'm going against God because of what Jason said here when it may not be nearly as clear as that. There's some things that are clear, don't get me wrong. But I'm going to try and stay out of a lot of that for very much reasons like this. So the Lord himself, he would say, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And this is just, I mean, a great condemnation from the Lord. You can almost imagine, it's like, how dare you guys go and take the commandments of men and treat them like they're doctrines of God, like they're the very truth of God. But we do that. We can do that so naturally. Pastors can do that. Christians can do that. And so we we see we just have this attitude that's given to us here in the confession that's just to say, no, God has set us free from all these contrary authorities. They have no authority. They have no right. God alone is Lord of the conscience. And so uh, we'll just close with a few commentators. This is Hodge, AA. Hence, God himself has set the human conscience free from all obligation to believe or obey any such doctrine or commandments of men as are either contrary to or aside from the teachings of that word. And you see how that's also a a matter of belief. That's a matter of attitude, right? That's not merely what you do. But, you know, I mean, again, like the silly thing. If I'm telling you, God loves soccer players better, if you believe that, that is actually undermining the liberty that you have in Christ. It's not even to say you went out and joined a soccer league after that, right? It's simply if you believe that contrary authority, that is something God has set you free from. He does not want you to fall into. Herman Bobink he writes, If human laws conflict with God's law, then the conscience may consider itself not to be bound and is obligated to passive resistance we must obey God rather than other people. Find it helpful? I mean, you guys know I just love Herman Bobbing, but I also like just getting someone in a different context, saying things that, uh, that, that that are kind of stark, and you recognize they're they're fleshing out the same principles of God. They're, they're fleshing out the same uh, words of God. And so, yeah, if if someone's going to say, do this even though it's contrary to God's law, your role is to not do it. That's what he means by passive resistance. You refuse. You don't have to go and take up arms, but you refuse. You refuse to to do it. One last closing comment. This is from uh, Robert Shaw. No person on earth can have authority to dictate to conscience. For this would be to assume a prerogative which belongs to none but the Supreme Lord and legislator. The idea here, God alone has authority in this realm. If you could picture a literal throne with a literal king, there's one who's allowed to to reign from that. Imagine the king is gone and I go sneak up on his throne and start trying to hold court. That's not my prerogative, right? That would actually be an offense to the one whose prerogative it is. And this is the idea. God alone has authority over the conscience. No one else gets to get in there. No one else gets to substitute for him. No one else gets to take their turn. No one gets to undo what he's doing. No one gets to add their own thing on top of what he is doing. God alone is the Lord of the Conscience. Now, where that's going to lead us next week, I've got to pause here because there's no way I can take off on any more without just massively ruining my supply of time. We're going to then have to ask questions like, when is human authority rightful? When do we need to listen to it? Paul will actually talk about that there is a time to be in subjection to authority, and why? He says, out of conscience. So I say that just to to point ahead to a a place where we're going to have to nuance this a little bit, because I don't want this to get subsumed within this kind of like, oh, I'm not going to do what anyone tells me to do, spirit, that's out there. That's not actually what Christian liberty means. That's not what we're talking about at all. And so... We just start by knowing where our supreme allegiance is to. It's to the Lord of the conscience. And when we look down the way and we recognize, but there are times we're going to have to reckon with, what does it mean to honor the Lord of the conscience when it comes to human authority? And I think that has been really an important topic of late, hasn't it? So we'll pause there. there I've got actually a few minutes. You got any questions, comments? All right, well, feel free to come grab me afterwards. Otherwise, I'm going to do something rare. I'm going to finish five minutes early. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all you've done, and we praise you as the only Lord of the conscience. Uh, we, we pray that you would give us uh, both faith and courage to trust you alone as the Lord of conscience. We pray that you would, even beyond that, give us the sermon to navigate a world that makes it... Um, we'll say complicated, to live as people of conscience. And so we pray, Father, lead us in your way. We also pray that you would bless uh, the rest of this Lord's Day. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.